0: Hello, and welcome to the Roving Social Worker podcast. I am Jay, your Roving Social Worker. Before I lead into the intro for the social work identities pieces, I wanted to reiterate the importance of self-reflection and growth. This is a lifelong process. It doesn't end with the last chapter of a book, with a certification, or even a degree. It is ongoing, sometimes uncomfortable, and we do mess up along the way. I will not speak for my guests, but I will say that I am constantly learning and often unlearning harmful ideas, behaviors, and processes. I hope that listeners can hear that growth as both the podcast and myself age. So, before we really begin, I want to add a content warning. Some of the discussions may cause the listener discomfort. Uh, it may also cause reflection. Additionally, it does contain sensitive topics and often strong language because come on, it's the Roving Social Worker podcast. In the last few episodes, we have been exploring social work identities. Initially, the project's goal was to discuss individual social worker identities. This meant hearing from grad school applicants, current students, social workers in the community, our radical and rabble-rousing social workers, and our social work educators and leaders. After weeks of overwhelming support, I started interviewing these unique individuals, asking them two questions. Who are you and why social work? It is up to the individual social worker to decide on what they would like to share and where they would like to take the conversation. Um, There is no expectation for anyone to place themselves in a compromising position with their family, their community, school, or employer. Remember, this is a public podcast, and when things go to the internet, that is where they outlive us. But that's enough rambling for me. I will let my next guest introduce themselves.
1: So my name is Michael Kelly. I am a uh, professor currently at Loyola Chicago School of Social Work, and I've been doing Uh, work at Loyola for about almost 14 years. And before that, I was a uh, school social worker uh, and family therapist and youth minister uh, for 14 years-ish within that. So uh, in terms of work identity, those are things that I would definitely speak from. And I'm certainly somebody who has uh, a lot of other ways to answer who I am. Um, I am a uh, uh, male uh, Irish American Chicago or uh, Chicagoland person. Um, I grew up uh, in and around Chicago. I have uh, pretty deep uh, connections to uh, thinking of myself as a Midwesterner. I think of myself certainly as somebody who um, approaches social work from a lens that is uh uh, progressive in, in in the sense of um, more left wing and thinking about politics as not um, it's interesting we're talking about identity because I, I think one of the dangers that we've fallen into in America is we foreground people's identities in ways that leave out other identities that people have often around class and I think it's it's an interesting discussion because when those those identities conflict we often, have lots of people that uh, I feel like get offended and hurt around things that are very personal, but there's often very collective expressions of of uh, of, of harm and of risk that are happening. And people people uh, in my in my view, we need more of uh, the ability to see our, each other across that. And um, so I, that's a very long-winded way of saying that you know I always was. Uh, somebody who was born into at least a bohemian kind of environment, not bohemian in the country, but a bohemian culturally, uh, in that my parents were very uh, interested in the arts and very interested in kind of different kinds of culture uh, uh, in the Chicago area. So that's music, film, theater, uh, uh, visual art, um, and, you know, putting me in spaces to think critically about lots of ideas. Um, You know, we were we were as white as they come. I mean, I'm, I'm mostly Irish American. There's some German um, and, and I'm Catholic, but there was a, a sense from the very beginning of my being uh, kind of brought into this world that I was being asked to, you know, kind of think of myself as in a larger context and having responsibilities to that context. So my parents really met. Um, well, they did meet in the civil rights movement and probably would not have uh, had me without the civil rights movement because they're from different parts of Chicago and, and that was a really um, kind of distinct meeting place for them to kind of step out of their uh, kind of white enclaves on the south side of Chicago and, and really um, be active in Mississippi and Chicago around civil rights stuff. So. You know, they, they really they gave that to me as a legacy uh, to, to really carry into my own thinking about myself, that even though I have and do benefit uh, without any effort on my part from white privilege and white male privilege, i I'm, I'm always uh, been expected to think of myself and in this, you know, largely white supremacist context. And, and what does that mean? Um, I didn't start out. Um, middle class, upper middle class, whatever I am now. Um, but I, I definitely was expected to kind of be in a college prep environment. And, um, and, you know, I, 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 I've struggled in some ways as a social worker when I, when I had to learn how to be in other environments where people didn't have that background. And, and it was a good struggle. It's a struggle. I try to bring my students now, because again, like, just as I was saying a minute ago that I think a lot of a lot of the identity discussion has run aground with people uh, not being able to talk across intersectional uh, identities or talk about identities that, um, that 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 I don't want to say even conflict, but just you know have different different ways and levels of expression. in people, I I, I often find when I'm in situations with school social workers or other social workers that don't have that don't have really a Lens that allows them to talk about class, it, it, it's and poverty. It, it, it's, it's interesting to me because they, they want to do what they know how to do, which is very often speak out of a very middle class and very white uh, frame, and then they kind of get upset that the the clients that they're talking to that maybe don't have that frame don't don't get it so to speak, or don't you know want to go with their ideas. And so I was very grateful that early on in my own career, I I had to very much learn how to talk to people in a community that was largely working class and working poor and multi-ethnic and wasn't interested in kind of social worky psychological language as a kind of starting point. I mean, they obviously loved their kids and they were worried about them and they wanted help, but they, they didn't use the lens that I grew up around. So, Um, I'd say those are those are some of the identities and certainly one of the things that I think is an interesting thing and being invited to talk about this is I think one of the least uh, acceptable identities that we have in social work to talk about openly is faith Um, we've kind of absorbed that to be a faithful believer person is to you know really sign on to a lot of what I consider pretty hateful and 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 uh, white supremacist to be honest uh, tropes and ideas and certainly I I I try not to be one of those, those Christian uh, people who happens to be a social worker, but I mean, I think there are people who are in our field that, that that's more taboo than some of the other things we could talk about. So um, that might be an identity we talk about as well.
0: Okay. I, I would say um, as far as the faith part, that comes up in a lot of conversations. Um, some of the other podcasts, we did touch on faith. So that's interesting. I, it might be more regional, to be honest. Uh-huh. I've been in places where social workers do not talk about their faith. I personally don't have a specific one. I was not raised. However, I was raised in a very Christian and Catholic um, areas growing up. So, And obviously, a lot of our laws and our norms and stuff are, are based on um, christianity even though we're not a christian nation technically right. so i'm familiar with it but as far as my identifying is like oh well i'm lutheran or i'm baptist or i'm i'm not and i in some of my jobs i felt kind of on the outskirts because i didn't have this strong faith um, a lot of the rural work i do faith is center to everything and while I work with that, some of the other social workers think it's weird that I'm not talking about it. Mm-hmm. And then when I work in very urban areas, we don't talk about it—at least right. not at work. That's an outside of work thing. Um, so, yeah. And it, then, of course, in rural—oh, oh, go ahead.
1: Like, yeah, I'm just curious. How does it in the the rural context when you see it being acted on or expressed? Like, how how are people asking you to pray with them? Are they? About kind of things that pastors said, or like, how how would you know that that's happening in the rural context?
0: Um, so as far as patients, they'll talk about it. Um, I worked in a long term care facility, and so with a lot of elders, mm-hmm. and that you know, you prayed with family, you you did all these things. Um, that doesn't make me uncomfortable. That's just a part of the work, and I I enjoy being involved in those things because that means they've identified me as someone. Um, worth talking to, of bringing in, that they've trusted me, that I'm not a part of their family, but I'm a part of their life. And they've identified this as important. So of course I do it. Um, That's in the best interest of the patient, the family. Faith is very, very important. It's when some of the social workers um, would start just generally talking about stuff or questioning me. And I don't, it's not that I don't like being questioned. It's that there are certain things that if we start talking about it, you're not going to like it. Right. You're not going to like <laughs> that. I'm going to say, well, no, I don't go to church. I'm not baptized. I don't, I, I don't follow these things. It's not a part of my life. And then for them, I was already an outsider because I'm not from the community. I mean, it was a very, and this is, was a white community, by the way, this isn't any of the indigenous communities I've worked in. This right. was a white Catholic community. Um, and I've talked about uh, in a couple of podcasts that I haven't even published yet, how that particular job was the hardest because despite looking like them, mostly being white, being, I look female. Um, that was the one where I felt like I was the most, like that I was the outsider and I, I was there for six months and it was mm. just really hard and stuff became very passive aggressive and I just didn't fit in. And so that was a huge um, learning opportunity for me is that. Yeah, Go ahead. I,
1: I No, I, I think what what you're getting at, I want to hear your thought, but I I think what you're getting at, though, is this idea of when people talk about faith and talk about it in social work context or just talk about it just where they live day to day. I think that one of the big ways that we other people or we make people feel unwelcome is we conflate whatever we believe or don't believe with our role as a helper, as a professional, and um, I think that that gets that that gets more heightened if we're in communities that, for whatever reason, are fairly, you know, uh, clannish or you know, kind of insular in terms of who comes in and who goes out, and that can be in urban areas, that can be rural areas. Um, but I, I I've I've often experienced a version of that that you're articulating, where on all on all, all indications. I'm white, they're white, you know, we, we we our cars are pretty similar in the parking lot and all that. But based on some of these other ways that that people kind of conflate the personal and the and the professional, I can feel very isolated because, you know, um, I'm I'm in a space where again, like I, I, I don't need anybody to vote the way I vote or anything like that. But I, I don't know how you do um, social work without having a lens that is about poverty and is about um, people that have been actively oppressed um, by us as social workers and the society at large and and to have a lens that somehow wants you to be out of that as some kind of savior be it a white saver or just a, an in-group savior has always just been something when I see that I can tell that that's going to be an environment where it's going to be tough for me to work I still need to be there um, because I, I need to give what I can to it but um there is, there is, I think, both the the kind of in group. We're we're here. Where are you from? Kind of thing. And I think there's also just a, a social work version of that, where we kind of presume, you know, of course we're a social justice profession. You know, of course we do this. And, mm-hmm. um, when the, the, the most kind of unholy to <laughs> keep the religious theme going from minute. The most unholy combination to me is when people have that lens of kind of the self-righteous social work lens and combine it with like a self-righteous religious community or other kind of in-group behavior. And then they just kind of feel like it, 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 it it's almost like they feel permission to kind of say and do whatever they want, because of course they're right. Right. Um, and Social workers have learned a language that's less about the kind of the language that like fundamentalists use in religion, but I, I've experienced spaces where you, if you just closed your eyes and you took out some of the words, you would hear things that sound very similar. Does that make sense? Um, that, that people yes. feel very convicted that you know they know what's right for those people. Right. And those people in this case are families or, you know, many a meeting I sat in in my schools where we were we were talking about these kids and their families like they were under glass or we were, you know, anthropologists going into the to the wilds of some rainforest. Right. Um, And nobody's saying it like that, like nobody's saying, like, I don't like black people or I don't like families that don't drive a car I do or don't listen to music the way that I think they should. And they're too loud when they come in, like no one's saying it that way, but it's implied that we, one, we don't see ourselves in them. And two, what we see in them is stuff we want to fix. Um, and then, you know, the the really ugly part is very often those very people were, you know, largely, uh, definitely white, but mostly white women. Mm-hmm. And, um, and here I am as this, you know, straight white man sitting there. Um, and, you know, I would get entirely too much credit for that too, by the way. I should say that out loud, that, that you know, people would say <laughs> People would say things like, Oh, wow, you're you're a guy and he doesn't have a dad, so you should be his social worker and or you know, like, well, the kids really like you. They, you know, and, and you know, I I I'm not putting myself down. I think I was good clinically working with kids and I loved it and I still love teaching it and all that. But I could tell that like the box people needed me to be in and some of those more toxic kind of white supremacist cultures that I worked in was we need you to be the kind of the valve that kind of makes us feel better for doing the kind of shit we just want to do. Um, and, and you're going to do that by like taking the parents that we think are really difficult and even make us feel like they're, they're they're crazy. And, um, you're going to definitely be the one that works with all the boys that are angry. Um, and you know, those were, those were healthy. Yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, it it was a mixed bag, right? So like, here I am teaching school social workers now who are going in the field and most of them, I mean, they're, they're, first of all, they're all they're all really um, energizing to me, and I love their their spirit, and I love the passion they're bringing to it, and I'm excited for them. Uh, and then I try to bring that back to them. But you know, as a group, they're almost all in their mid to late twenties, and they're going to be in these. You know, and you're you you you've worked in some of these environments too. Like these are environments where you're in a host setting. You are likely working with lots of people that could easily be your mom or dad in terms of their age, <laughs> um, and you're in an environment where you will be very likely the only person that does your job, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you know, for the the for the go getter, autonomous, I want to do it, entrepreneurial spirit people, I think that a lot of that's very attractive. Like that's like I can go in, I can make my way. But I think the the downside of that is you could be in environments where you know, people are all sitting around a table talking about how awful the families of the school are. And, and, you know, what do you do? Absolutely.
0: Oh, that's,
1: that's that's not the time for a lecture on white supremacy. Like you could do that. I mean, you can, you can have, you can kind of burn it down and leave, but like, that's not going to move that that's not going to move those people. But at the same time, you have to like, sit there and figure out what to do with that. Cause obviously you don't want to participate in that by agreeing with it. And you don't Mm want to, you don't want to foster more of it, but you know, you, you weren't brought in. I mean, it could happen that someone is brought in as an anti-racist school social worker, but, you know, very likely they're not bringing you in to help them with that, you know, what? It, but, um, but it's there. What you I got to deal with it. It's right in your face.
0: What I found, um, I mean, I'm on my fifth contract. So the places that have, um, I don't want to say high turnover but high turnover of travelers or they do have a high turnover of social workers but they have a lot of experience with outsiders um, feel or at least present less with you're not exactly like us so you can't help us mm. so in the terms of my the rural white farmers that I was working with, it was very hard for them to deal with someone who doesn't have this one of the family names in the areas. That was kind of the huge boundary that I just could not navigate for some reason. In my other contracts, it was they understood that I'm either temporary, I'm not from there. And so we never had to... Um, get past that. They instantly knew I wasn't from there. The the other place, they couldn't figure out why I wasn't from there. Um, and so, they were spending I, time
1: I, trying to unpack that, yeah. Or like kind of, you know, kind of interview you or poke and prod you about that. Yes,
0: right? like, you know, they just, absolutely they were interviewing me, and then yeah. there were there were things I couldn't tell them. Right. Um, because there, are, there was so much racism, and like there are, there are things I had to hide, so they thought it was weird that i wasn 't openly discussing my family or showing pictures because they were used to that, but i couldn 't because if I did, that would cause huge problems with staff and patients, so it was I had to be the quiet outsider, um, but that's that 's social work as you brought up uh, students moving forward or clinicians in any part of their career if they 're changing where they 're going. It's always who are you, and why do you think you can be here to, you know, help us or right. or to work with us? You shouldn't be helping; you should be working with them. Well, That's but
1: I think you nailed that last that last thing. Is like I think when we talk about helping people, and we think about it in this very kind of you know, very directive way or, you know, not even directive, but just a top down way. Like it's, and, and it, you know, the words I use often, because I think it does have roots in some pretty ugly stuff is like a maternalistic or paternalistic or patriarchal kind of mode, right. That these, these poor people, um, fill in the blank of whoever they are, need us as social workers to be there to, you know, back in the day, teach them mental hygiene, right. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. um make them better parents because they don't know how to parent their kids or, you know, whatever, when that's the lens that we start with, it's very likely that the other stuff we've been talking about will follow suit because our identity is then very wrapped up in, you know, having a correct view of whatever living (laughs) gender, you know, race, um, and And anything that disrupts that, you know, and and you know, my disruption was a little less, or well, a lot less intense in terms of having to um, not share a lot about myself. But, you know, one mm-hmm. one example that was very real is I'm married to a Jewish woman and and we're raising our kids Jewish. And I, I eventually, quote unquote, came out on that. But like initially in this first district I worked in, which was, you know, a, definitely a very Christian and evangelical and Catholic community. Um, I wasn't totally sure how that was going to go over. um, And she wasn't. So we, we, you know, we, we, we didn't hide it in the sense, and it's a different kind of disclosure, right? Like she's white, she's a white Jewish woman. So it wouldn't have been um, visually obvious, but you know, Mm -hmm. right around now we're talking in December, it's, it's, you know, this is a time where we do holidays differently, right? I mean, we do Mm -hmm. some things that are around Christmas time with family, but like, this isn't, You know, this isn't a house with a tree in it. You know, this isn't a house where um, you know, I'm very interested in the Jesus part of Christmas, but the rest of it I can, you know, I have no real interest in. So um, you know, that's good for me personally in terms of my marriage because I didn't have a lot to get over between the two of us, but you know, I was in a community school where that was a big deal, the holiday party, the blah blah blah. Right. So um and again, like those things are are are, to me jay those are kind of like gradations of things we have to kind of choose about how to share um because you know to some extent that could just be invisible for us i mean it wasn't like it's not like we lived in the community it's not like my wife really cared whether i told everybody she was jewish or not um because she was happy being jewish in the place that we lived and all that but like being aware of being in a space where i had to make a choice about that um is, you know, again, I, I don't want to overdo it either. I think people of lots of other identities are doing that in a much more, you know, life or death way on a daily basis. But I, what I was intrigued by and in, in kind of, you know, thinking about talking with you is just how does identity teach us how to be more helpful to the people in front of us? And to me, the thing that I have really come to is the, the main thing is if, if you know yourself well enough to know. How you participate in oppression and how your own story is caught up in that, um, you're going to be a lot more effective reaching many different people who don't have your background. And if you don't have that, you're going to often default back to some things that I think, you know, may or may not be, uh, you know, hurtful in the moment, but will, will overall be hurtful and will diminish you as a practitioner because you just won't be as effective with people. People won't trust you, people won't want to talk to you. Um, and I think the most you know, graphic example of that in the faith-based conversation. And I edit a textbook that is used in a lot of small Christian colleges and it's out of the national associations of Christians and social work. And one of the things I'm most proud about with my co-editor is we have really hammered in that book, the message, you know, this is not about mission work. This is not evangelization, right? That, that mm-hmm. whatever you do or don't believe, and obviously this is a Christian context, but there could be other religious denominations or, or other religious faiths, that's, this fits as well. Like you're not there to convert. You're not there to judge based on what you think you're a social worker. And, you know, yes, the roots of our profession have lots of religious um, roots, good and bad, but you know what you mostly need to do. And this is the part, this is, I guess, why I brought it up to begin with is what we mostly need to do is we have to be willing to use our skills as, as social workers, the micro skills, especially to, learn about assess and understand what our clients religious or spiritual background is or lack thereof or or trauma related mm-hmm. to it right that that when i said i think it was a taboo identity to even talk about for myself and then then talk about it in a larger context of what we do with it like that's the thing that i'm still really struck by like i teach at a jesuit school and you know we are you know we're in a big urban area and the Jesuits I think historically have been one of the most ecumenical and socially progressive Catholic uh, orders. Um, and I, I, I see that at Loyola. I mean, for all the faults of the church, there's definitely a lot of evidence that we, we're trying to walk the walk around a lot of the things social workers do. But what I'm always struck by is that I teach a class in the second semester of the second year that's around brief treatment. And, um, and I, one of the modules I do is about how to do brief treatment and access the religious spiritual strengths and resources or traumas of your clients. And it's gotten better over 14 years, Jay, but I can't tell you how often people say things that are equivalent of, wow, we don't really talk about this a lot here. <laughs> um, and, and again, it just really brings home to me that like, it, it's not, I'm not just criticizing my school. I, I, I don't know that that's taught a lot anywhere. Right? Um, no, and, and
0: I, is, I, I, I would I would agree with that. I mean I've been to two different in my masters I was at two different schools because I switched. And I don't remember having any real faith based or not, I shouldn't say based, but faith centered discussions in the classroom unless it was between students who were disagreeing. Mm. Um, there was no and, and of course I went to schools that were like secular. There there but it It's odd. You're right. It's really left out. And it's usually between social worker and social worker. I think the biggest issue I had in the classroom was there was a couple of Mormon identified. They were like, we're we're Mormon and we don't know how to work with gay people was essentially what they were saying. But they said it a little more derogatory in class. And um, it went on for a while. And I and I was much, much younger than I am now. (laughs) (laughs) I had told them. If you can't get over it, then you need to leave this profession now because you're going to hurt well, people.
1: Yeah. I mean, can we stop on that for a minute? Because, I mean, you know, I, I we're both older now than we would have been the first time we had those conversations, right? With yep. people. But <laughs> I, I don't know that I've gotten older too much in my thinking on this one. So, I mean, I, I mentioned that textbook we added um, and, you know, we got a new edition hopefully coming out sometime middle next year. Um, sixth edition, so it's a well-used textbook, and it is used in some pretty conservative spaces. Um, you know, uh, in terms of social work programs, or, or at least social work programs in schools that are conservative places. But one of the things that I think is is very pointed that I try to raise in the book, and that I think I raise when I'm asked about it, or, or I mean, just in spaces where it comes up. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that your code of ethics as a profession should have things to say about what your beliefs allow you to do or not do. Right. Like I think, um, I think it's not our responsibility or our role or our um, right to get into some discussion that basically hinges on, I believe this, thus I can't help somebody who does something that I, I think is against God's will or you know, mm-hmm. is, is simple. Like, you know, I I think there's ways to say that maybe as a younger person or as a person kind of speaking out of their own hurt as someone who who's queer or feels a sense of of of, of threat from that. Um, but I think there's a way to step back in a more detached, reflective way and just say, as social workers, our code of ethics say we got to be where the client is at in ways that really require us to not put ourselves into it. Right. So. And that's my, exactly. My, yeah, my hunch is the reason, Jay, I'm sorry, just the reason I think we don't talk about faith and spirituality in, in in our courses very much is twofold. One is that we're afraid of those conversations that you just mentioned devolving into some kind of dumb talk radio version of people yelling at each other and mm-hmm. just you know, having hurt feelings. But then the second one, and I think this is the one that I really, I don't know if I'm getting older and I just want schools, uh, social work to do better on this because I think it's there for the doing, is I've never thought it's about what I believe. I've always thought it's about what my clients believe. And just mm-hmm. like I was telling you a little bit ago about this kind of multi-ethnic working poor, working class community, that I found myself in my first uh, full-time social work gig. I was in these spaces, Jay, with with kids that were Mexican and Italian and Greek. And by the way, the Mexican, the Italians and Greeks did not view themselves fully as white. They viewed them as part of that ethnic group right so i mean Mm -hmm. they they like that they like the benefits of whiteness but they would regularly come to our school and tell the principal why you picking on the greeks why you picking on the italians so um so there was a very strong identity of all three of those groups one of them orthodox and the other two catholic largely and i would be in spaces with them and their kids and they would just start talking in a public school about religious stuff you know, there be, you know, I actually wrote an article once about it where they made me have to learn how to talk about it. Because here I am in a public school, I'm coming with, you know, very middle class kind of psycho, psycho jargon, jargon from my nice, uh, polite, um, uh, you know, um, crunchy, <laughs> crunchy, crunchy suburb I grew up in, where everybody, you know, talks about faith in a very kind of NPR kind of way. And here I am with these people saying, you know, would you pray for me? Because this is the anniversary of my my sister who was killed or um, you know, I, I believe in ghosts and I've seen one and and I've gone to see the local faith healer about it. And, you know, and these were not things that I had gotten any training in, in my secular MSW program. Um, fortunately, I had a kind of interest in college around sociology of religion. So I at least had some sense about why religion, you know, is helpful for people, even if it's not a religion I don't know anything about. So, you know, I, I found myself just kind of being curious and and that's the part I try to give people now almost 30 years later is you're, you're not there to like agree with their faith. You're not there to do their faith with them. But if you don't, if you don't ask them about it and you don't find out what it is or isn't doing for them, because you know the other piece we're not even talking about in this answer I'm giving is lots of people have really hurt by their faith too. Like they've been driven out of it, mm-hmm. or they've been traumatized or abused or whatever. And even the people that you know, don't say they have a religion, that's important to know too. <laughs> you know, like where else are your strengths coming from? And, and the thing that I, I try to give my students is, okay, so you can be very unresolved about all this stuff and this could be something that you're, you're just not ready to talk about much in your own life, but you absolutely have to have a way to talk about it with your clients because there's a lot of evidence that, particularly in minority communities and communities that are in rural areas, <clears throat> that an awful lot of what people are doing out of kind of secularized urban context is when they're in trouble, they go to a spiritual or religious source. Right. They go to, they I, go to prayer, uh, they go to pastor, they go to synagogue, wherever. And if you don't have access to that, like you're in some ways, it's like you're not even really doing a psychosocial assessment because you're missing a ton.
0: One thing I learned and I'd say i be I've become a much better clinician because I've worked in on reservations with indigenous people when I've mm-hmm. kind of worked in a, in a totally different setting. I've become a better clinician from those experiences But one question I would ask, um, especially when I worked with the Navajo is, well, um, did you see a medicine man before you came Mm
1: -hmm.
0: for a lot of them? And I would say a third of the time, the medicine man referred them to us. And Mm -hmm. so that's what actually got them through the door. And if they're like, you know, I haven't, I'm like, well, well, do you need to do, you know, this type of thing before you come and talk to me so you feel better about it? And they're like, no, no, I can talk to you now, but I'm going to go do that this weekend. So it, that the faith, the belief is, is huge. Um, What I like to use this podcast for is to not just talk about my triumphs. I pick things where I didn't quite fail, but I didn't quite do well. And so there's been a couple of large ones. And I think the assumption is what I have to remember. I work very well in places that are very different from my experiences and from what I look like and my thoughts. I do work really well, but I have to remember when I'm in spaces where I assume people are a little bit more like me to know that they're not. Right. And that's
1: it's a more subtle thing like it's it
0: is and we fall into that that trap of safety like oh and i think the same thing happens with them and then there's that disconnect and how do you deal with that well i can i can do that with um i was in phoenix for a long time so obviously there's huge there's actually a pretty large refugee population um but then of course there's a lot of mexican middle and south american and puerto ricans there as well Mm -hmm. so that that's easy to work in those schools um, it's easy to work with those clients for me because I already I come in knowing like, all right, here's my identity. Here's my privileges. Um, how do I impact, how do those things impact my work with these people? But then when I work with white folk, it's always a little bit um, off in the beginning because I have to remind myself, they don't think like you. They don't know they don't have the same experiences, even though we look the same. And I, I've had a couple of supervisors tell me, like, you just have to keep that in mind. And when I do, it's fine. When I don't, that's when I kind of have this snowball effect of like, but why isn't this working? Right. <laughs> um, oh, right. Because we're not the same. And even after 10 years of, ex- of doing this... um all the education, you know, we do it and we make mistakes. I think uh, Dr. Bruce Perry said, and it was like in a podcast or something, he's like, I make clinical mistakes every day or something to that effect. You know, we make these clinical mistakes every day and it's identifying what we do and then doing better. Right? You know, not making the same mistake. And so I took that to heart. I'm like, oh yeah, we do make mistakes. Okay, let's talk about them then so other people can learn and maybe not make them. They'll make a different mistake.
1: But I think what you just said that's so um, potent to me about thinking about what social workers might hear this or do with this is I, I feel like this topic of all of the topics is probably one that people are most loath to admit they've made mistakes around. Um, and I particularly think that's very acute for those of us who are, are, are white in social work, um, because I think to to do something um, that's a mistake. And I like the word mistake rather than wrong or harm or like just something that was a, a misfire or something you didn't intend, but that had an effect that was that was not what you hoped for or, or, or whatever. Um, I, I think to have that be in the context of what we talked about today leads people into, oh my gosh, am I a racist? Have I done something that means I'm homophobic? Am I, you know, all these words that, you know, exist and should exist because they are about real things. Um, I think they paralyze a lot of well intentioned people um, because they've worked up in their own mind as white people that I, I, those people are racist. Those people are whatever, fill in the blank of all the different things you can be um, sexist, homophobic, et cetera. Um, and I don't, I don't I want to be that person. And I think those people are really awful. And so I can't see myself at moments where I might do something that's perceived by others or just straight up is. As, as one of those things. And so and what I see instead is I see a lot of overcompensation, right? I see people that um, presume to be way more effective <laughs> with people than they are. Um, and, and they're not willing to kind of, in a sense, risk admitting that they're not sure what they're doing sometimes or apologize or say, you know, I, I, I'm sorry if I got that wrong. Um, because, you know, when I talk about, uh, Jay, when I teach my, my stuff, I teach, I teach this frame of cultural humility. And to be a culturally humble person, you're never going to be competent in anybody else's culture. To me, I mean, that's always been a, a real mm-hmm. misfire that we put that in our code of ethics and that we even talk about it. Because, you know, I'm barely competent in my own life, let alone you know someone else's culture. Right? <laughs> that that's that's a very, you know, I mean, that that's to me like a very ugly kind of concept that we even put that out there to people. But I can be very, I can be in relationship with people and an encounter with people. And this is where I go a little bit to. Pope Francis, and he talks about theology of encounter. Like, if I'm in a space where I talk to people with a humility that I'm there to learn about what they think and and what their reality is, and that yeah, I have expertise and I'm hopefully going to give them something collaboratively we do together. But I'm mostly interested in how they see things. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna get into spaces where I I need to do things like say tell me more about that or tell me tell me what that means for you. Mm-hmm. Me. Tell, tell me what a medicine man even is because I don't even know. Like I mean, my example of that was. Um, the 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 Mexican kids I was telling you about in the school I first worked in, they were going to uh, a faith healer on a pretty regular basis. Several of them, um, and I didn't have any knowledge of that. Like I, I the Mexican uh, families I grew up around were much more middle class, and if they did that, they kept that very quiet. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, they weren't telling me anything about kind of more uh, kind of indigenous religious traditions. They were just talking about being Catholic or, or, or Protestant, Evangelical. So. All of a sudden I'm hearing kids refer to that and I find out of course there's like a couple uh faith healers that actually have storefronts in town um that's how evolved they are in terms of how how much they're part of the community and you know I, I actually one of the things I wrote in one, that article I mentioned is I actually got a release of information to talk to one of them because um you know you told that story about how some of the medicine men referred uh families or kids to you? Like it was the other way around. Like I wanted to reach out to mm-hmm. them, to see if they would help me make a referral. And, you know, sure enough, it worked out really well, but you know, that, you know, getting released of information to talk to somebody from a tradition that you know, nothing about like that, if that's not cultural humility, I don't know what it is. Cause I, I had to just be completely <laughs> listening and looking around for that, you know, um, and owning that I didn't know anything about it. Right. And, and, you know, it, it's, 14 years later, and it's still this very powerful experience um, 20 years later um, for me, because I, <laughs> I, try to, I try to teach from it now, you know, and say that, like, you're going to be in interesting spaces where you're going to learn things um, that you didn't know. And, and it, your reaction to that is really important as a, as a beginning social worker, right? Like you have to have a lens that says, I want those experiences, and I'm even willing to make mistakes within them. Um because if you don't, you're going to miss out all these things. It's like a tip of the iceberg. Like your clients have all this stuff, then they just won't tell you. And they'll, particularly, I think minority communities are very good at deciding what to say or not say to the white person in front of them. Um, and they, they just won't tell you. I mean, they may eventually, if they don't think you're that interested in them, just not come back. But even if they do know they have to work with you and they like you, okay, they're just going to gonna calculate how much they can even tell you about themselves. And it's really important to like, give the very strong impression and action that you want them to feel like they can tell you everything, right? Um, it's relevant, so.
0: I um, think the the biggest oh shit moment for me where I'm like, I should have known that. Why, why is this new information? Why, you know, I've been doing this for so long. I'm so proud that I'm doing these things why is this why was this thing said to me and I'm like fuck wow have I been you know harming people I know you don't like that word but have you know what have I been doing was when my it was probably the first or second week I was working with the Navajo and I'm like in the middle of the reservation it's very rural where I was and one of the psychologists walked up to me and he's like don't continue to colonize these people the way other social workers have and I went, oh, okay, yeah, 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 no, no, I totally get that. Yeah, thank you. And I walk into my office, and it's just like, oh no, what does that even mean? Yeah. So I sat down for the rest of the day, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, all right, what is what does he mean? Because I don't want to feel stupid and go back and like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> just what does this mean? So I'm, I start looking up. Um, Obviously I was in school, so I go academic first, right, And then right. I start pulling charts for for patients that I will be seeing, that I've assumed from other social workers. And I start reading the charts and I'm like, "Oh no. Oh no. What did they really do that? What? what this diagnosis? Are you kidding me? Um And then I realized what he meant that they were coming to this space from their religious perspective, from their socioeconomic perspective, from their ethnic perspective and diagnosing and treating the Navajo people as if they were the same as them. And so I saw some very interesting and by interesting, I mean, horrific diagnosis. Um, One was gender dysphoria for someone who was gay. Mm. Um, There was no gender dysphoria. They were gay. Right. They they were totally cool with being the gender and in the body they were. There was no dysphoria there. Their issue was they wanted to find a girlfriend, but being homosexual in that area was very dangerous. Right. Uh, so that that was a whole nother issue. Um, how substance abuse was treated. It was treated faith-based sometimes. Well, like if 20, you just have yep, Jesus... Or, or pray? Um, pray through it. If you just believe okay. in God and Jesus and do these five things you'll be sober and saved and like this is the stuff like and i saw some of this play out i actually heard it when i observed and then i got these patients and i'm like i'm not doing that are you okay with that and they're like yeah that was bullshit so <laughs> but they didn't feel like they could you know say anything against that That clinician because, you know, they're the educated clinician and they know better. And I'm like
1: Ian. They're they're, you know, I mean, the thing I try to say to my students about this, and I tried to live when I was in practice directly is, you know, you're in a position of power whether you like it or not. Like they they came to you. Like they came they sometimes come mm -hmm. to you very willingly. the thing I try to say about my school folks is like every kid you've ever had is a mandated client until you turn them into something else. Like they no kid unless you're in a really, really special environment is just referring themselves right? Somebody else decided they needed to come see you. And once you get your head around that and say, okay, I I want this kid to want to come. I want this kid to see this as valuable or this family or what have you. Like once you start to think about yourself in that power dynamic um, and, and, and get over yourself a little bit too, is what I try to give them. It's like, don't, don't not like exercise the fact that you do have that power like you know you need to use it well and you certainly need to not engage in colonization or other kind of racist uh, uh behaviors with them but like how are you going to wield that influence that that they know you have in a way that really empowers right and so the 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 way that i you know the way that i try to teach it and i try to to do it in my own work is to, you know to really frame things around what it is that our clients want and how they want to be helped. And what I find it's you know it's, it, it sounds so basic, but it, it is this thing that I think social workers have to continue learning and relearning is so much of what we do when we get engaged in diagnostic language or we engage in kind of othering of people in other ways is to just get out of that encounter where you're really there with that person bringing what you have to them and then they're gonna do things with that. And to the extent that you make clear that you really wanna hear what, they, what they're living, how they live, what they think, you're gonna, it's, it's, it's gonna go deeper. They're gonna tell you more, they're gonna share more. Um, but the thing I try to really convey to a lot of my students is, you know, most of you that work in communities of color or, or other uh, minority communities are gonna work with people that are on a daily basis, probably hourly basis in some cases, making decisions about how much to disclose about themselves. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, we all have a, about race or, or, other, other identities that are, that are, uh, that we're, we might talk about that way. Um, but I, I think it's particularly acute for those populations. And so how do you somehow be a social worker who is mindful of that, but also respects those clients' ability to just kind of decide how much they want to tell you, right? Um, And the, the, the examples I, I try to try to model is, you know, like you just said, like you're, you're going to do those mistakes anyway. And, and just to be clear, something I said earlier, I'm not against using the word harm. I'm just only against the word harm, unless it's really used in like a restorative context where Mm -hmm. the harm is harm is about repairing it. Right. It's not about, you know, standing there in the square and pointing Jack cues and you harmed me. And, you know, we turn into, you know, everybody's been harmed and everybody needs to, you know, Get get like an adversarial kind of solution. Like that's where I worry is when people think of harm or or other things, they get stuck in. Okay, now I'm a bad person, right? Um,
0: yeah, and that's kind of what I I picked up on that. It's and I, feel I went to that space immediately,
1: where, right? You know,
0: well, um, yeah, the guilt is kind of built into that. It's you, right. especially if the the more you become aware of who you are and what we're doing and how that. historical. like I'm really big on history, especially all of North America history, actually, not just U.S., because we followed the same path of colonialism in both countries. It was the same players in both countries, the same uh, European countries going through. So um, we call it different words, but it's the same thing. And that's a big part of it. So the more aware you become, the, I don't want to call it white guilt, but you feel this, this presence of, Oh, okay. So all these really bad things happened. And it's sometimes hard to work in these environments and not be like, I don't know, I can't, I know I'm not supposed to fix this. I'm not necessarily helping, I'm working with, but it can be overwhelming, especially for newer clinicians. And I see that with the people I work with, especially if this is their first job um, in this type of community or this type of setting, they burn out really quickly. And they don't understand, like, I say very simple things like, you know, every interaction with these kids is therapeutic, even though we're not doing therapy. Every time you're modeling good behavior or appropriate behavior, I should say appropriate boundaries with other adults, other relationships, and they're seeing that, that makes them feel safe. Every time you don't scream at them because they're doing something just totally out of order, (laughs) just being like wild in and it happens they're running around they're screaming they're doing all these behaviors that we don't like as adults every time you react probably maybe more calm than even you should it's it's making them feel safer um so it's breaking it down into those little sections and then it's you can kind of deal with and and stop thinking that you're going to change everything that everything's going to be fine when you leave because it's not right
1: but isn't that the flip side of the guilt? Is And that's 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 what I had meant to say a little while ago. And I, I kind of forgot to kind of work it into what we're saying is that what part of maybe why for you, it's been tough. And I think it can be tough for lots of social workers that are in what looks like it should be a fairly in sync environment. Um, you know, once once we get to a state of awareness where we're thinking about these issues and being critical of ourselves and others in these issues is it, it, it again, like I was saying a minute ago, like all the different ways that people of color and other minority groups have to just make decisions about um, about how to move in the world with their identities, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the, the most stressful and burdensome things that that we as white people can put on those communities uh, in all the spaces we work as social workers is to be in spaces that are oblivious to our own whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and And to me that's been one of the biggest um, goals, and, and certainly not anything I'm perfect at in any way, but that I'm I'm really interested in understanding you know my own experience of whiteness, and certainly challenging my students who are mostly white and female uh, to look at their own right that that and 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 whiteness is itself something that's still pretty contested in terms of what is it and how do we how do we even frame it, um, but you know I was very influenced by. Uh, a couple texts, one of which um, uh, was a book that came out, I think sometime when I was in grad school after, called How the Irish Became White, Um, and it's a history book that basically documents how many Irish immigrants, when you look at the early historical record of America, were talked about the same way we're talking about Mexicans now, Mm -hmm. um, the same way. Not the, the, the whole whole full on same way we've talked about black Americans, but some pretty similar things were being said about Irish that were being said about blacks. Um, and they were certainly being said against each other like there was a lot of kind of divide and conquer without getting Irish and black uh, Americans to fight amongst themselves so that the the larger wasp kind of dominant majority could take control. Um, and, you know, now we're in a place where some of the most virulent racists in American politics and public life are Irish Americans. Um, and <laughs> you know, and, and you know, it it irks me no end to know that that's the case. But there's also another tradition also of a lot of Irish Americans who um, have, you know, have fought up against that and have in part done that because they got in touch with, you know, what is still to this day in some parts of Ireland in the north, uh, a, a police state that treats, you know, Irish Catholics very much like we treat black Americans in urban areas. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, you know, that that's not to Make an equivalence. I mean, I'm not at danger going, uh, you know, into any uh, urban space like somebody uh, of color would be in a in a in a in an American city. But it was helpful for me in my 20s to go to the north of Ireland and realize that people that look like me have been regularly brutalized there. You know, um, mm-hmm. and 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 to just know that like a lot of this is ultimately about constructed identities that people put on you, right? That Um, you know, to an outsider being in the north of Ireland, everybody looks vaguely the same, you know, I mean, their accents are different. And certainly, they live in very different parts of that, that very contested area. But, you know, if you're outside of that, you would look at it and say, geez, what's everybody fighting about? Like, I I used to lead tours of um, Irish American, uh, not Irish Americans, just uh, Americans into the north. Um, When I was in my school social work job, I did a a summer uh, uh, tour guide job. And one of the things that would happen if you've ever been to the North, there's a, a town that's, it's so contested, they can't even agree on what to call it. So the the, the, the British identified uh, Northern Irish call it Londonderry and the Irish Catholic uh, Republicans call it dairy. Um, and so <laughs> when you're in I mean it, it's it's wild i mean there's actually a wonderful netflix uh, comedy series called dairy girls that i totally recommend people listening to to go check out because it's it's humorous it's got all this great stuff about adolescents and girls but it's also totally about this um, kind of the beginning of the peace process era in northern ireland um, but so you go to Derry and it's this heavily catholic area and it's historically been a, a real site of resistance and, you know, I'm sitting there uh, after we got out of our tour bus and all these Americans, very well-intentioned, nice people, said, well, if everything's so bad here and all the police and the, the military are, are on their case, why don't they just move, you know? Um, and I had this very visceral experience, Jay, of like, well, that's what we say to lots of people that are in oppressed backgrounds, right? Like, if it's so bad, why don't yeah. we just leave? You know um and i've been very helped just in my own thinking as a social worker with the the public publication of the 1619 project from new york times um, yeah i am and the, yeah i mean just a, a remarkable document and i continue to read it and use it to teach from but one of the things that it does if if people read that um intro essay from nicole hannah jones is it, it gives this incredible uh, historical do- account of Lincoln calling a bunch of black leaders into the White House um, in the midst of the Civil War and basically saying well what if you just I'll go back to Africa you know <laughs> um, and and again like this is you know somebody that I think rightly we talk about is having done incredible things to keep our country together um, so I, I I think one of the dumb things we do in 2019 and is we make things into binaries of good bad. cancel Mm -hmm. culture and shit like that so i mean i'm not arguing to cancel lincoln or anything but you know lincoln was in the the time he was in where you know blacks were a problem right Um,
0: i we have that kind of goes back yeah that kind of goes back to uh, the historical uh, context though like understanding our history right and a lot of people don't right
1: but i think and and that's that's what i was kind of trying to develop is that you if you start from a premise as a social worker, particularly a white social worker, that we are inherently socially just because of the profession we do, and I'm personally, you know, a good person because look at me, um, that kind of knowledge of Lincoln being himself, um, you know, a white supremacist is 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 somewhat untenable, right? Like it's like, well, what do I do with that? Because Lincoln must be good, and you know, the people that I think are good in American politics or history have to be good, and they can't be this gray, right? Um, and that's what I think is so genius about the 1619 project is it's taking all these very contemporary issues around healthcare, around how we view pain uh, in 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 Black people, like how healthcare uh, professionals have viewed pain from people <laughs> in communities mm-hmm. of color, um, housing, um, you know, I mean, all that stuff that's in those essays, and we and and we locate it back in this you know 400 years ago moment that we started, and I think what we've done historically. In my lifetime, is we've allowed kind of conservatives to say, "Well, stop complaining, stop bitching, stop whining," and you know that that itself you know shouts people down and makes people feel uh, like they they can't speak up. But what this does, I think, really effectively, is says, "Okay, so you can say these things are in the past, but look at how they're happening right now, right?" Um, and that's what I try to invite my students to do with that is to to not read it and just bask in the guilt of I've benefited from. If I'm a white woman from a deeply white supremacist society that takes me way more seriously uh, than even my black student colleagues sitting next to me, um, but rather to say, okay, if that's what America ha- is and has been, how do we act out of that? Does that make sense? As opposed to, you know, marinate in the guilt of it or you know put it on someone else, which is what I think is so brilliant about that issue is it doesn't put it on anybody else. It says this is this is who we are.
0: I think for for me personally, this is kind of my path. Um, I don't have a BSW. I have a double major and a whole bunch of stuff, and I ended up taking a lot of African American Studies courses because it counted for um, actually uh, gender studies, one of my degrees. So. The first defining moment, and I must have been 21 at the time, 20 or 21. I'm standing in a bathroom at a historically very white college that was trying to recruit more African-American black folk in. We were in the in the women's restroom and this was right after one of those uh, AAS classes. And I'm just talking to them because I'm like, yeah, this is cool. This is normal. I grew up in mostly white areas. Um, and They're telling me the story about how in one of their science classes, a white girl who was real dumb asked them, is your blood red too? Because they were black, she assumed their blood was a different color. And we're, we're in college. How did you not know that? And I like it just was so it was so dumb, like the the stupidity of that question to me was what hit me first. And then I'm like, Jesus, that's really racist. And then they start telling me stuff like, well, part of the reason you can't get more black women down here is there's no place for us to get our hair or nails done. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the beginning of thinking about whiteness and racism and then the knowledge of the... Um, It's not outright the KKK, but the Klan did give a whole bunch of money for one of the buildings that was on the campus and all this stuff. And then you start to know this history and you start to see present day stuff. So I was young and I'm like, okay, And that was around the time I decided I would probably get a master's in social work. Mm. Fast forward, what really shook me as far as my identity and recognizing white privilege and my whiteness and all the things in it. It wasn't education. It wasn't coursework. It wasn't going through advertisements, um, learning about uh, history of civil rights movements, all of them, not just black, um, was marrying a black man. Because when I'm alone, I'm white. When I'm with him and my son now, that white privilege starts to morph into something else because there are safety issues. I, I do watch people be extraordinarily racist to him and very nasty to me mm. to say things, to do things. Um, one example I've given to other people is, in the state I'm in right now, where we live is okay there's a lot of just real passive aggressive racism because there's a lot of white folks on this reservation Mm -hmm. um they're allowed to live here actually and own businesses Mm -hmm. that's that's a little different than other places so there's and that adds a layer of difference in my social work because some of the kids i see are are half or are white i don't see just 100 um indigenous children and i don't work in a bia school which makes it a little different too um, so there's a lot to consider in this conversation. It was a little—it was a little clearer on the Navajo Reservation up here. It's not so much. Okay. Um, but anyway, when we leave this area, there are certain parts, certain towns, where we can't stop because there were huge issues. So when we're on the 94, <laughs> the interstate, there are certain places we can't stop because there's been threatening behavior towards my husband and me. I mean, it's geared towards my husband. I'm there. Yeah. But you know, do you, do you think someone as feisty as me is just going to stand by if <laughs> right? if they go after my husband? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. no, yeah. I, I am going to lose my mind and go to jail. Probably if someone threatens him, I'm not going to start yeah. fights that could endanger my son or him, but it's, That is mind-blowing that I am not safe in my own country, not because of my queerness, not because of my femme, not because of other things, but because my husband is merely black and he's married to a white woman, which is a huge taboo. You cannot do that. Why are you mixing? And now you have this, and my son's been called some things that I don't want to repeat right now because it just makes me angry, but dehumanizing my child as well. He's half white. He's half me. He's four. Wow. But he's that's getting it. it. He's, he realizes people in and, and his languages people don't want to be my friends and he doesn't oh. understand why. Adults don't want to be nice to me and I and he, he's very friendly, he's very outgoing and for a period there it I don't he used to say hi to everyone in the stores and I've noticed he doesn't do that as much and I don't know if that's an age thing or that it's um, he's being a little choosier on who he's interacting with. But so I mean he's that's... already
1: having to kind of you know some of that just might be because he's young enough he just develops into whatever mm-hmm. he's developed into but he's he's already having to make decisions about how he interacts and possibly it's related to these issues in a way that you know would not be true of a, a white kid um,
0: that's for. And from what my husband has said, um, when they're together, things are different. When when Aiden's with me, he does talk to people and people interact with him differently. I mean, he's light skinned. He is fairly light skinned, but it's clear he's black or he's not, you know, white, 100 percent white. He's he's um, biracial with something. Mm -hmm. Uh, But with his father, he's definitely black. With his mother, it's a little more ambiguous and she's a white woman and whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's what their perception is. So that has having a having a child with a black man, having a black husband has definitely challenged a lot of that white privilege and made me think differently about how my whiteness impacts other people. And also having a partner who was very open to discussing these things and challenging my thoughts for a decade mm-hmm. has helped me evolve into um, thinking. But at the same time, I still fuck up. I mean, I'm still going to make mistakes and that's okay because I learn from them and I try not to do them again.
1: Right. Yeah. I think and- that's a really good kind of you know, just thinking of like kind of a, a summation that I would give to this uh, really cool chat we've been able to do is, is how do you commit as a social worker, particularly those of us who might be listening that are beginners or just getting started um, to make not making the same mistake you know, so, so obviously don't just intentionally try to make mistakes. Don't hear that before we go today. But, you know, if you do, if you cause harm, or if somebody is not responding in the way you hope they would, or you're just, you know, ignorant about something in in a way that we all are in, in various degrees, how can you commit in your own kind of ethical way to try to not make that mistake again? You know, knowing that you will, in some cases, still make that mistake again, but that, that, to me, that that has freed me up to the extent that I can in in living this, and and certainly not trying to look down my nose at other people and their struggles to be anti-racist and to really think of themselves in in, in the ways we've talked about today. Um, if you can be in the space of saying, yeah, I, I will make mistakes, and I am going to put myself in situations where I don't, you know, maybe know as much as I wish I did, but I'm also going to try to not, you know, um, make that mistake again. Um, and the good news is, the more we talk like this, the more people are going to see how 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 not universal, because I think there's still just a lot of silence and just kind of, you know, uh, um, unwillingness to talk about this in social work. But to the extent that we talk about it in social work, I think people will see each other and they'll feel less, they'll, they'll feel less paralyzed um, in this. So
0: I, I, Laura Hodge on Twitter, I don't know how much you've uh-huh. interacted or seen her. She's yeah. part of Social Work Cares. Um, I think she put it best in a tweet. She had, she misstepped, said something. Um, Came off not so great, and I I think her initial response was, "Ouch, I'm sorry." That's where we start. We acknowledge that. Oh, I'm sorry. Apologize, and at the same time, like now, you know, my how do I feel about this? That's awful because you feel bad that you hurt someone that you care about, or someone you're talking to, or maybe someone you don't even know. I mean, there there is that initial, "Ooh," because we and we don't like making mistakes. And then learning from it and asking, like, "Oh, I didn't, I didn't think about that. I didn't know that." Um, you know, and then go look for it. Don't expect the person to educate you on it. Sometimes they will. Sometimes they won't. Um, and when other white people see that, you know, they can make they can't speak for things, but like, well, you know, here's this book that kind of discusses that, or here's this thought. I don't know if this is exactly what happened, but having that discussion. So you're right, normalizing it. It, this this country has always been super racist and oh, deadly yeah. to, to communities of color. What Trump did is, he didn't create racism, he didn't create racists and Nazis, he just normalized it. And so right. all these people are coming out doing this shit and making the a lot of us feel unsafe. So as Part of our job, part of this podcast, part of being on Twitter, part of being in social media is we need to normalize the conversations. Is it's okay to say the wrong thing, right? Because you're gonna learn from it. That's the ethical way of doing things. Is oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. I'm I that, my bad. You know. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna better myself by learning. I'm gonna talk to other people. I'm going to view a little bit more before I speak. You know, it's t- it's pausing before you say something. Um, my voice the- doesn't. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was to say, I was just going to say, my voice doesn't need to be long in every space. Right. I can be yeah. there, but I don't need to speak.
1: Yeah, I love that. And here I am interrupting you so you could say that, so I apologize. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, one one idea that I, I think is really potent that is a bigger can of worms than, than we might be able to get into, and maybe we can have a separate conversation someday and podcast about it. Maybe you can join our podcast on our, our site when we, once we get it going on schoolsocialwork.net. Um, I, I have been very taken with some of the cultural criticism and political writing since the the really the, the 2016 election and the way that Trump uh, was mobilizing the racist uh, kind of American uh, uh, spirit in a sense. I mean, certainly actual people, but some of that just, you know, taking all that stuff that um, people in conservative spaces and in liberal spaces too, um, quiet, the, saying the quiet parts loud. Right. Like saying those things in ways. Mm-hmm that lots of people say to their friends or to their families, but saying it in ways that um, was getting in votes and just you know having this open access through Twitter and places to just view stuff. And one of the things that I that I think is a really interesting thing in the spirit of this, this podcast thing you're doing is, I, I think identities can be weaponized in a way that I think people that started down the road of talking about identity as the pathway to justice and the pathway to uh, solutions for a society hadn't really anticipated. And what I mean by that is like I, I look at what's happening with white power and people that I don't even want to name them because they're so icky, but like the people that are mm-hmm. that are on Twitter or on YouTube and are talking to young people through those spaces, they're essentially using their own kind of distorted, twisted version of identity politics to mobilize them. Um, and they're using a very strong frame that says, you know, people don't understand you, not just you, you know, lonely, frustrated person but they don't understand you as a white person and they, your, your whiteness is offensive to them. And I understand your whiteness and I, I love your whiteness. And, and it's, it's an uncomfortable conversation to have because in some ways we need to be doing that for people that are oppressed because they don't often have that sense of self-love in the larger society, right? Like they're not getting that model to them, right? They're, they're getting something very different and representation has an absolute role to play in helping people feel safe and, and seen. But, it, it has not been much of a stretch for these right-wingers to use literally some of the same frames to argue for a white supremacist identity. And and within that, a white Christian supremacist identity, this whole thing about, you know, you are oppressing me because I have to bake a cake for a gay person. Um, and like, I, I I don't know that people on where we sit, I don't know if we're a side or whatever we are, but like, I don't know that we've fully reckoned with how much that's already penetrated that culture, that people are absolutely using that language and frame. Um, And that we're going to have to find a way that is more in the humility space we've talked about today to say, we're not going to be get very far if we set ourselves up as the moral agents that do it all right. And those are the racists, because the racists have already co-opted a lot of the language of oppression. And if we don't know what to do with that, you know, they're going to continue. I mean, I don't know that they're going to ultimately win over, overall, because I think there's just a lot of young people that think these arguments are dumb and that they want us to get over ourselves and, you know, get people college uh, tuition and jobs and healthcare. But um, there's there's an awful lot of people that are making noise about these things that are very much, you know, they're they're they're, they're trying to win this as a culture war, and um, you know, I'm concerned about that because I don't know that social work is saying much to that. So. <laughs>
0: I, I I have a lot of feelings about our overarching organizations and what they are and are not doing, and how out of touch some of the discussions are. Um, I think my biggest beef right now is the NASW's newest image for this I year. I know.
1: I've loved The, gener- you. I've the loved Generations thing.
0: <laughs> okay boomer like yeah. seriously I,
1: I laughed out loud when you were riffing on that on twitter i was like you know that is so good and and yeah but again like that's our national organization right and you know i i even know a few of those people personally and i like those people just fine but i, I don't know who did that logo but um yeah it's it's what are we ultimately doing when we get caught up in things like that? meanwhile people on the waiting, you know white identity politics in ways that are really toxic and dangerous right um and what is social work saying to any of that right um you know you know
0: they come out with these 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 news they come out with these like little reports or whatever these statements and they're really progressive and they're really against all this bullshit and then they they do stuff like that like right. th- this is no no we need to address <laughs> racism we need to address like if anything social work pay like generations okay are you what does that even mean and right. i i think that was part of it i looked at it, i'm like this is a failed campaign already because what the fuck does that mean yeah. and why do i care
1: well and, and again this is this is actually probably a good thing for us to end on for this um, I, just because i do think this is a really good example of how being unable to sit with the other, so to speak, the client, the whoever it is, and to really listen to them and see where they are. I I, I find it very hard to believe that any truly investigative process of reaching out to membership or just social workers that aren't even members would have revealed that that's what we need. Right. Like, like that was somehow created in some kind of consultant kind of marketing shop. (laughs) that, you know, a person in the field, a person like me that's sitting around writing things and thinking about, like, none of us would have signed on for that, right? And and yet, no, that's what we're now going to see as our branding for foreseeable future. Um, and, and again, like, I think that's, that's what's interesting to me. I'm only getting into a little bit of the social work cares and, and paying attention uh, and trying to learn as I go. But, you know, stepping out of that space and saying, you know, social work itself has its own legacy and history and current reality of oppressive practices that we got to reckon with. Um, and we also have to then take that and take it to the other stuff I was saying, where we then bring our kind of renewed focus on, you know, really being uh, uh, honest and accountable about what we do, we need to take that the larger arena and make it clear to others that, you know, like I loved how you said it a minute ago, like when you do things in a school with young people, or you do things just in an organization where clients are around, it it models to those clients, this is how I act, this is how our organization acts. And I, I'm kind of at a point, I don't know if this is just the age I've gotten to, is... I think just like in schools around things like EVP and multi-tiered system supports and all those things I work in, like I think most of what we're looking to do at this point is change the behavior of adults. Um, You know, that Mm -hmm. that the kids obviously have behaviors and kids have needs and that's why we're largely there. But if we're gonna really move things around like race and equity issues and uh, school to prison pipeline and a lot of the things we've kind of talked about indirectly today, like, it's really about getting the adults themselves to do things differently, to see things differently, to be in relationship differently. And, you know, to do that, given that we know most of these environments are going to be white and in many of them, not all female, it, it has to somehow speak to that population about how do you begin to see yourself as part of that larger machinery that is oppressing these kids, but also not be paralyzed by it? Like, how do you somehow become somebody who can, who can move within that? And you know, again, I, I, I'm I'm heartened. You know, we're we're talking about it. I'm heartened that other people I'm having conversations with about this are are seeing this too. But um, and actually, we're about to just get on a a, a chat on our schoolsocialwork.net talking about these very things around restrictive discipline practices like seclusions and restraints. So, um, you know, these are these are hot issues that need to be hot. <laughs> um, but yeah. once the once the hotness dies down, so to speak, once the flame of everybody talking about it, you know, where are we going to be? Like, are we going to be still just trying to you know tell ourselves we do a good job because we're social workers? You know, and I hope we're not.
0: Here, here is kind of, you, you mentioned adults, you know, modeling, changing things for adults. Here's what I've noticed in our current culture. And honestly, in clinical practice, this is what I've seen more of. When you get groups of children to model behavior, adults will follow suit mm. eventually. So like uh, when I worked in outpatient we had, and we taught this to the kids, you're learning these skills to, to bring home. And guess what? If you keep modeling this for your parents and your siblings, they're going to start mirroring it in conversation. You're going to actually teach them how to communicate better. And we had siblings, older siblings and parents come in and say, you know what? They taught us this, this, and this. Is this what you guys are learning? And things decreased. Um, I do, I like to do group work because I can get a group of kids that are engaging in a lot of dysfunctional stuff together and against one another. And then we start modeling how to be, how to communicate better, how to be better friends, how to be better students, all that. And then you place them in the classroom and then other kids start to pick up on it and they start to mirror that language. Right. So, you know, children are our future and we need to invest a lot more into supporting that. So it's for both. I'm modeling for the adults in the school and I'm trying to model with the kids, but I'm also teaching the kids a lot of skills. So it kind of goes both ways when the adults don't want to do it because that's the way it's always been done. But you have this large student population that's like, no, we'll change. We'll learn. We're open to these. And they are self-referring. You had mentioned earlier a lot of them. No, I have about half my caseload is self-referred. They walk into my office, tell me their issues and be like, can we meet? Awesome. <laughs> and that that's but that's not common. And I know that. But you, they, you, they you, know you
1: some groundwork to get there like that. I mean, some of those kids are just going to do that because they figured out they need help. But I, my guess is you did a lot to get that to where that happened. Right. I mean, I have you know, purple and-
0: hair. I have yeah, I have well, purple hair. That's that's so, kind of uh, <laughs> I wear weird clothes and I have purple yeah. hair and they're like, who is that person? To,
1: I would have <laughs> wanted to talk to you about that. Like, hey, tell me about that. That's, yeah. Um, no, I, I I like I like what you just said there about kind of what what does make change happen, particularly in you know very kid intensive environments like schools or even residential spaces that you have to have you have to have the kids embrace, buy in, start to practice mm-hmm. behaviors. I, what I, I guess I'm concerned about sometimes is that we also find ways to, and again, this is very sensitive, difficult stuff, is how do you get adults to see in themselves and ourselves, to make it personal, that we are doing things that are, you know, ineffective. So let's leave and leave outside the, the loaded language of oppression, like, let just like we're doing things that are ineffective, like there are practices we do in schools all the time that are just not effective. Um one of the most effective practices that I saw in one of the middle schools I worked in that's now that I do research on stuff has actually been validated by a lot of the research, but just, I was just doing it. I wasn't even, you know, this is more intuitive at that point in the nineties was if you're in a school that has lots of, you know, kind of low level violence. So not like actual, you know, uh, uh, stabbings or shootings, but has, you know, fights or people bumping into each other and threatening each other. um, If you, if you are the adults and you model that everybody's out in the hall and everybody's out in the hall, talking to kids and talking to kids in a way that isn't, Hey, you, you know, but like really conversational and high fives or whatever, like that in and of itself decreases violence. Mm -hmm. Like Even if you're not doing anything directly on the kid, that's going to be bullied or is the bully. Like you're just, it isn't just a surveillance thing. It's like, uh, the adults care enough about us to be out in the hall. And they actually want to kind of talk shit with us while we're going to and fro class. Like, like that's, that's, that's powerful, right? Um, I can't tell you how hard it was to get some of my teacher colleagues to do that one thing, because they wanted to just stay in the room, you know, Um, and they didn't want to be told what to do. Um, (laughs) So, you know, and and again, like this is so on one level, if I had taught the kids to do better behavior in that setting, that would have been helpful, but also the adults had to step up, you know,
0: Um, so. Absolutely. And
1: yeah, i have to i I apologize i know you're gonna edit this stuff i I have to get to this live chat in a few minutes i don't want to just end abruptly but i just want to let you know i mean i'm totally loving talking to you but i just wanted to let you know that
0: and i know i know it's coming up i was going to ask you are we almost there so is there anything else anything you want to leave with the podcast our audience today um any gems uh, positive notes, uplifting quotes that you yeah. want to leave with us?
1: <laughs> sure. I mean, and can it be uh, some plugs as well? Is that okay? Are you already Absolutely. I'm doing? All right. This so, is I mean, why I, you I, do social work. Yeah, well, and I think it, it's uplifting in, in, in what I'm trying to do with it. So hopefully it'll fit that as well. So first of all, I, I really enjoyed talking about these issues and I look forward to talking more with you and, and other folks that want to talk about these things with me. Um, we have two websites we run right now. One is schoolsocialwork.net, which is a news blog site where we are talking about these issues and people are writing things and people are sharing things. And we invite you, if you want to read that and submit, please do. We have another kind of our version of a social media platform that isn't the evil Facebook version is called School Social Work Network. Uh, And it is got as of now over 2,100 school clinicians, most of them school social workers are on it. And that's a bulletin board kind of format. We can do live chats there. We can post things. Uh, That's another space where we are going to be tackling these issues, uh, particularly around race and equity and restorative practices. Uh, And then finally, if like you really want to go in and do more of this, I run a post-master's certificate program, the school mental health advanced practice program at Loyola, uh, which uh, is 15 credits, two years. It's, 99% online. You got to come hang out with me and your colleagues for one uh, summer week in in Chicago. It's very cool to come, Um, and you'll learn how to be a social emotional leader and an anti racist educator and all these things we've talked about today. Uh, And uh, yeah, I I hope you take advantage of any all those things. And I appreciate getting a chance to 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 try to model a little bit of how we do this that we that we be transparent, we be honest about our own kind of shortcomings, and we invite people to do the same.
0: Well, I appreciate you coming. I I thank you for uh, this wonderful dialogue that we're going to be able to share. And good luck with your Twitter chat. Um, Until next time, if you need any more Roving Social Worker, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at travel underscore MSW. Until next time, friends and travelers, this ends today's segment of the Roving Social Worker podcast. Travel well and keep on traveling.